This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hello, you are listening to Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. My name is Chris Gillespie, and I have the pleasure of being your host for this episode. My guest today is a talented writer who is perhaps best known for his terrifying 2020 novel, The Chain, his riveting 2022 thriller, The Island, and his ongoing series of detective novels starring Detective Inspector Sean Duffy, the latest installment of which, number seven, the the Detective Up Late, hits bookshelves this August. Also, if you were in Manhattan between 1993 and 1995, you may also recognize him from his stint at the 82nd and Broadway Barnes & Noble store in New York City. Yes, he's a fellow Barnes & Noble bookseller and also a very talented writer. We're so happy to have him. Please join me in welcoming Adrian McKinty. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for being here, Adrian. I'm really excited to get to talk about the latest chapter of the Sean Duffy saga, The Detective Up Late. Before we get going, I was wondering if you'd be able to set the scene for listeners of who Sean Duffy is and what's going on in his life when The Detective Up Late opens. So yeah, it's he's a Catholic detective who lives in Belfast in the 1980s. Uh, 1980s Northern Ireland, for people who are not familiar with it, it was a fairly apocalyptic landscape. The IRA had been waging this campaign uh, against Britain for the previous 10 years. So by the time we got to the 1980s, it sort of resembled London after the Blitz. Um, lots of burned out buildings, burned out cinemas. Uh, there was no real investment from international corporations. A lot of people were emigrating. The whole thing was an absolute nightmare. Into that milieu, he's a Catholic cop trying to do ordinary police work in a situation where it's almost like a low-level civil war. Added to that, the atmosphere of, at least that is the way I remember, I was a child in that era, um, constant rain, gray skies, um, army helicopters flying over the city, and um, sort of Blade Runner landscape, and and then you put an ordinary copper in there trying to solve regular murders and whatever. The series originally began as a um, a trilogy, uh, and then with the popularity, I wrote a fifth, a fifth, uh, a fourth, a fifth, and a sixth, and now we're at uh, book number seven. To your point, the low level conflict going on in Ireland—that's usually referred to as the Troubles, right? For listeners yes. who may be unfamiliar, yeah. I- it's almost struck me as a really odd euphemism. Um, for this is really <laughs> like how how many low key do you want to this thing where like basically bombs are going off every day? You know, there was shootings mm-hmm. at night, um, riots on the street. All these riots just were never even reported on the news. You'd be walking home from school and there'd be a riot going on with people attacking police Land Rovers, or there'd be shootings and bombings or whatever. Every day of my childhood, that w- that was the landscape. And then years later, I thought to myself, you know, I was looking, hunting around for an idea for a mystery novel, and I thought, well, my goodness, I've got this incredible milieu. If I could get the right characters in the right location and then give them a story, the the landscape and the atmosphere will just write itself, which it, it, it actually did. I would agree with that, yes. Um, and for this particular installment, number seven, we're joining Sean Duffy pretty late in his career, almost so late that it's almost over by the yeah. time the book is starting. He's literally getting ready to retire and he's just doing 
the famous one last case. It's quite the cliche, the famous last case of, of the copper. I remember there was a, a Michael Douglas movie where um, called Falling Down, and, and the cop who was investigating him, I think it was Robert Duvall, it was his last week on the job, and all the other coppers are going, oh my God, last week on the job. You know, what's going to happen? Are you going to get shot? You know, you're about to get your pension. What's going to happen? So I sort of live that cliche of the last case or the last week on the job uh, and uh, and what's going to happen. And um, for Duffy's last case uh, on the surface, he's been given a really mundane one. It's just a teenage girl who apparently has run off from home. And she's run off before none of the other policemen or peelers, as they're called, are interested at all in looking into this case. Uh, but he, it's it's the last one on his ledger. So he decides to start digging. And as he starts digging, as is the way of these things, it turns out that it's a lot more complicated than it first appears. That's right. And uh, I think an important element to add to here, too, is that the missing girl is from a kind of subculture community in Ireland that's kind of on the fringes. Would you be able to speak a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, um, when I grew up, there were a lot of Irish travelers around. They've got their own culture, their own language, actually. It's called Shelter. You know, there's some very, very famous traveler people. um, You know, Tyson Fury, who's the world heavyweight champion of the world, boxing champion. Um, He's a traveler. Travelers have been around for about a thousand years. But at least in the 80s, I think still today, there was a lot of prejudice against them, a lot of racism, and basically um, they were looked out upon and discriminated against. And um, and so another reason why this case isn't taken seriously, it's a traveler case. Um, this is just going to give us grief. No one's going to care about it. Um, it. It's of no interest to us at all. But for me as a writer it gave me a really good way of going into another subculture another world i mean northern ireland at the time it wasn't just protestants and catholics there were all these other little interesting subgroups that you can explore and and have fun with as a reader i thought it was fascinating because i i was familiar with you know ireland northern ireland the conflict the troubles but i had no idea that there was this whole other you know kind of smaller community on the fringes going on uh and it, it is to your point such a sad tale of like how much prejudice ends up affecting what police focus on and what investigations happen how seriously they handle them because on one hand missing person cases a lot of times missing you know woman cases if they're younger those can become sen- sensationalized headlines and become national stories at least here in america but then uh, it takes very little for those same stories to become almost nothing like a blip that the police don't even want to investigate. Yeah, exactly. In this case, um, I like the fact that when Duffy arrives, the cops are so over it. They're, they're not interested in it. They're just fed up. And But Duffy just goes, nope, it's a case in our books. Let's take it seriously. Let's see where it goes. And it goes in very, um, at least to me, interesting places. Very surprising directions. Yes, I would agree with that. This being your seventh novel with Sean Duffy, what kind of things are you still learning about him as a character at this point? Like, are you writing and you're like, oh, wow, I never, I guess that is a character trait that he has that I've never really thought about before. Yeah, it's, it's been really, really fun. Uh, just every every book, you just get a little bit deeper and you get a little bit more interesting in, 
in where he's going. And I think he's matured more. Certainly from the earlier books, he was very, very impulsive and he did crazy things. In the last book, in book six, you ha I, I, there was this real moment of reckoning where he thought, well, you know, here I am in my late 40s and I'm still doing this stuff, the, you know, the stuff from a, or that a younger man would do. And I need to grow up. I've got responsibilities. Not, I have a, a wife of sorts. He's not actually technically married and, and he has a child and he's trying to be more, uh, more mature. Um, and I like that those levels where he's exploring himself. Sometimes that, that can be the funnest thing to do in a, in a, in a book is have the character reflect on who they are and their times they're living in and their existence. And I like that mm. kind of stuff. But there's also moments in this book where he's incredibly immature and mm. does really reckless things. Like there was, a, a, which took me by surprise because there was a scene where it's not that big of a spoiler. There's a scene where he gets in a fight like five or six chapters in. And the way, when I was writing that, the way that was going in my head was, well, Duffy's an older man. He's not going to get in a fist fight. He's a policeman. He's an older man. You know, he's more of a peacemaker. He's not going to get in a fist fight with his next door neighbor. That's ridiculous. It's not going to happen. And yet, as I was writing it, it the whole thing escalated. And I found the character because, oh my God, what are you doing there? Don't do this. And he mm. what was happening. He was in a bloody fist fight with his next door neighbor. And I was going, oh, wow. That totally took me by surprise. And, you know, I'm quite pleasantly surprised. And I says, oh, there's life in the old dev yet. You know, he's he hasn't quite got rid of all these immature instincts and, uh, and recklessness. So um, I, I kind of enjoyed that and uh, was a little taken aback. That wasn't the way that scene was supposed to go or had gone in my head. <laughs> that's so cool i mean i that's it that scene does stand out to me and it was like reading it i kind of got that same journey and that impression of like oh well certainly he's not i mean he's mature now like i i recognize that there are scenes like this from you know earlier adventures that he's had that it was reminiscent of and i was like oh well he probably would have handled this one way but certainly he's more mature he's about to retire enter this new phase of his career he's not going to go completely ballistic on this man but then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> like, this is, he's, I'm like, well, he has so much, because I, I also think to like, just set it, set the frame or set the scene for the listener. He's also kind of in this weird position because he's literally, in addition to moving into a new part of his career, he's also physically moving. They, yeah. he and his partner and their daughter are leaving the house that they were in originally which was in outside of Belfast because they're like, this is not safe for a, to raise a family here. This is crazy. So they moved to Scotland where it's going to be a little bit more quiet and a little bit more safe. And there's this really interesting metaphor and something that you keep kind of going back to of his commute across the water back to Ireland. It's kind of like he's trying to get into this more relaxed, safe headspace in Scotland, but he's got to do this case and he just keeps going back into the darkness kind of and going across that water and going back to that old world. So when he is in Scotland and he lashes out at his neighbor, I got the impression that he was like, he has so much built up aggression and tension because of all of this, that he just, he had an opportunity to let loose on this neighbor and he just went for it. Yeah. I mean, I just, the, the, there's the couple of things I want to parse there. One of the things is the idea of leaving. Um, Ken Branagh made that film Belfast uh, a couple of years ago and it was all, him leaving Belfast, and um, I think he left in the in the early seventies, mid seventies, or something like that. 
And a big part of my childhood, I was basically in high school throughout the 80s. A big part of my childhood was people just leaving. And um, one year, a third of our high school class left. Um, they emigrated to Canada or the US or Scotland or England or Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. They were just, they, they all were left. And the ones that were left behind, like me, my family, we didn't go. I was like, well, why can't we go? Why can't we go to Canada or the US mm. or whatever? And occasionally those kids would send back postcards, but they usually dried up after a while. They said, oh, yeah, we'll definitely keep in, keep in touch, keep in touch. But they didn't, you know, for the first six months, maybe. And you knew what was happening. They, their lives were just so interesting where they'd moved to. You know, they were living in New York or Los Angeles or Sydney or wherever. They, you know, they didn't want to think about Northern Ireland anymore. They didn't want to think about the people they left behind. But we were the ones left behind, and um, we felt so sort of rejected and 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 disconsolate. It was a bit like that TV show, The Leftovers. Mm -hmm. They don't focus on the ones that have. I, I don't really know what happens to them. They transcend. They go to another place. It focuses on the ones who are left behind, and and that's what we were like. And so Duffy's in an interesting place because he moves his family out, but he still has to finish his job. So he does have to take the ferry back. And then he has to go into two different headspaces. The headspace of living in Scotland where there's no war, there's no violence, no one's going to shoot him. The people are having barbecues and going to the DIY center and going to Ikea. And then back in the Northern Ireland where there's nothing like that. And it's just live and let live. It's a bit like, there's an amazing scene from, and, and I think this had a big impact on me. There's an amazing scene from The Hurt Locker. Did you ever see that? Um, the Hurt Locker, Catherine Bigelow? I, I remember seeing it when it first came out many years ago, yes. The scene that blew my mind wasn't any of the explosives or um, you know trying to do um, the IUD devices and in, in, um, diffuse them in Iraq. The scene for me was, the guy does a, a, a 12 month tour in Iraq and then mm. comes back and he's in a supermarket and his wife asks him to get some cereal. And he's in this brightly lit supermarket with the UV lights and there's 150 types of cereal and he has a panic attack um, because it's just too much for him. The world he knows is very, very simple. Cut the red wire, cut the green wire, try not to get killed. But this world of bright, garish lights, um, elevator music, and 150 types of cereal, his head's exploding. He doesn't, can't compute it. And that's a little bit what it's like for Duffy. He's in the world of Ikea and 150 types of cereal. Mm -hmm. And then he took Barry over to Belfast and it's gazelle helicopters a thousand feet up and armed soldiers on the streets and people trying to kill you every day. And how do you process that in your head? Can you process that in your head? I don't know. It's um, it, it, To me, that's a really interesting territory to explore. It's when you brought up the Hurt Locker and you said, well, there's one specific scene. I was like, well, what scene do I remember? And I was like, oh, it's the supermarket scene. Before, right. I, before you said it, that there's something so striking about that scene that stays with you as the viewer. I think kind of what the commonality is between uh, Jeremy Renner's character in that movie and uh, and Sean Duffy is that once you live, once you are in an existence where the only things that matter are life and death, 
re-entering kind of the absurdity of society and capitalism just feels like you just see through it so much when you're used to life and death like those are the things that matter and yeah. then you're like how wow all of this is so bizarre right now and, and it's also funny because there's um you know this is a it's a police procedural and all the duffy novels are police procedurals but i think what makes them a little bit different is that even ordinary policemen detectives you know plain clothes guys who are sort of intellectual guys solving cases they still their lives are in jeopardy and there's bits where there will be and i've talked to a lot of um policemen about this they'll be involved in a gun battle or a riot or they'll be seconded into riot duty and 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 you know they just they that's also hard to compute um, in your head just go we're supposed to be the intellectuals of the police force you know mm-hmm. the thinkers you know, the guys sitting in a room with a glass of whiskey trying to solve all these. But here we are in a shootout for real. So the, a lot of them have to compute that kind of stuff. It's a difficult headspace to be in. But as a writer, gold, really, really fun to explore that that world. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, branching off of that, I what I really enjoy about Duffy as a character is that He's a police detective. He takes his job very seriously, but he's also very funny in a very kind of dark, sardonic way. I was wondering, where is that sense of humor just something that comes naturally to you? Or is that something that you kind of discovered while you were writing the character? Or is it something that is really maybe kind of just like a part of what life was like during the troubles of being able to cope with humor? Well, I mean, here's where I, I suppose I could be a wee bit controversial. This is they've made a lot of films about the Troubles, a lot of them, and they're all terrible. And they're all terrible for the same reason, is that they are usually made by outsiders who come to Belfast, um, who have this story, and they always play the same doleful music. It's always the same depressing arc, you know, tragic arc, and they're all so grim and terrible. And that wasn't my memory of what life was like in the 80s. I remember just it it, it being really, really funny. Uh, like something <laughs> happened, and then the next day in the playground, there'd be 20 jokes about it that these wee muckers had made up, these terrible black humor jokes. This, How do you think of this? And there's like 10 different jokes. And it wasn't until I saw Dairy Girls. I don't know if you've seen Dairy Girls. And uh, that's a slightly different generation for me. She grew up in the 90s. I grew up in the 80s. And then I said, no, that's finally something that's captured the way it was. Uh, Because it was very, very funny. And the, the people were desperately trying to outdo themselves to think up jokes the way you would get a girlfriend would be to make her laugh. And the worst thing a father could say about a boyfriend um, after he's come over and been in just the family, the worst thing a father could say, well, he doesn't have much of a sense of humor. That's death. You know, he's never going to be accepted by the family. And the girls go, hey, well, I'm going to have to dump him. Um, because just it was all about the joke. So that was my experience of life, though, and that's why I hate all those films. I hit, I hit Cal, and I hit the Crying Game, and I hit a Prayer for the Dying, and I mm-hmm. hit all those films. 
and clear and present not clear and present danger it is a clear and present danger i can't remember the the harrison ford one um i hate them all because uh, that's not a, a close to being a reflection of northern ireland because northern ireland is a really really funny place and uh, the people are very very funny and dairy girls is accurate Mm. the other ones are rubbish i mean they're really really bad uh, <laughs> my friend, when i started this series um with the first one i thought to myself i'm gonna do it like it was uh mm -hmm. there's gonna be darkness there's gonna be deep darkness but there's also gonna be um jokes there's going to be levity there's going to be light because that's the way people coped and it was a, that's that was their coping mechanism was to uh make jokes be ironic be sarcastic and there's no way you could um you could have lived that life without without the humor and so the coppers have a very dark sense of humor and the civilians do as well and, and basically everybody does i'm curious as like if you having such a dark sense of humor which i will also be the first to admit that my sense of humor skews very dark and uh just something that i've encountered in my life is that sometimes people don't really like dark humor all the time and sometimes people you know everyone has their different limits have you ever had a a joke or a bit or something in a novel and someone else reads it maybe it's a publisher maybe it's someone else who's like uh you really can't do this one yeah all the time um i, I have a lot of english editors uh say oh well this is this is totally inappropriate mm. what had done before and they would say look you you you're you're dealing with some very serious issues and in the very next chapter you have these coppers cracking wise or making jokes or whatever it's just it's a total clash and they want tonal consistency that always strikes me as very funny because a lot of those editors <clears throat> you know had gone to oxford and cambridge and presumably had read Shakespeare. And, and I don't know if you've read Macbeth, that Macbeth yeah. <laughs> imaginable, horrible scenes. Um, Macbeth's wife ha is having a nervous breakdown about the blood on her hands. There's just deep, dark, supernatural darkness with the witches. And then there'll be uh, Macduff and his family cracking jokes. Or there'll be, you know, the levity in Macbeth. Even in Hamlet, there's tons of jokes. Even in Lear. Um, King Lear's up on the heath with his fool. If you remember, King Lear was supposed to be the bleakest and the darkest of the plays. Uh, in fact, has a lot of gags in that final act. Um, especially when it's clear that Lear maybe has um, had a stroke or has dementia or something. Um, it's actually very, very funny. And, and so I, I have had some pushbacks from that where they say, you've got to be, you know, totally consistent. And I always wonder why, why do you have only consistent? Cause Shakespeare wasn't the Greeks and the Romans weren't Dickens certainly wasn't my God. Dickens would have scenes of heartbreaking poverty and child poverty and, and horrible circumstances. And then jokes in the very next chapter um so i i think you've got to reflect life and life is everything it's the darkness and the light it's you know the humor and the tragedy and you just got to throw them all in together and this idea that uh, you have to be have one tone throughout an entire novel uh, it just seems silly 
right life is to your point tonally inconsistent right (laughs) (laughs) branching off of that i mean i think we can like while we're talking about that kind of like you know the darkness the a novel that really had an impact on people and certainly was a big deal for barnes and noble there was a mystery and thriller monthly pick was the chain uh which you also wrote which is not a part of the sean duffy series but that i i think it's remarkable because i can't think of another book where i can simply pitch it to someone and it disturbs them to their core yeah i i it's once you hear that premise it stays with you it's i i think it's like it's incredibly dark it's incredibly memorable how do you come up with something like that and then flush it out in that way well, I'd had the idea for a long time. That idea had been in my head for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was writing the Duffy series, I thought, but I knew it was going to be tough to write. Just the idea of, of child kidnap, I knew that's a heavy subject and it's tough to write. And I also knew that what I was going to put Rachel through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, well, I'm going to have the, the, the day her child is kidnapped is not the worst day of her life. <laughs> the worst day of her life is going to be the next day and the day after that and the day after that. And so I, I, I put off writing that book for a couple of years because I knew it would be quite harrowing to, to write it. And then when I finally got the courage to, um, to write it, then the actual writing process, funnily enough, was pretty straightforward. Uh, because um, it all flowed organically and logically. Like once you set up all those dominoes and just pushed one, you just think, well, it, it actually wasn't that difficult. What happens next? What happens next? What happens next? What would you do in that situation? There's not a lot of time to think. You just react and you just follow your instincts. And so that one, funnily enough, I thought it was going to be a nightmare to write it. I thought, oh my God, Adrian, you're going to be going to some dark, dark places here. Mm. This is going to be so, so awful to write. But actually, as a writer, it was pretty easy because I, um, and I, I got stuck, I think, two or three times in that book. And I thought, the, and then I, I figured out a terrible way of breaking the logjam. And uh, the terrible way was, um, and I said, well, what's going to happen here? And then I thought, well, what's the worst thing that could happen now? What's the worst thing that could happen? And I'd go, oh, it'd be terrible if that happened. And then I would write it. And then later on, like 60 pages later, I thought, well, what's the worst thing that could happen now? And then 60 pages later, I, 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 so every time I got stuck, I just thought, oh, what can I put this poor woman through now? And then put her through it. But knowing that she would triumph over adversity mm-hmm. and that she would raise her game and I respected her. The the more, Rachel, the more I wrote that book, the more I fell in love with her as a character and the more just my esteem for her rose. I just thought, oh my God, these people that have done this to her, <laughs> then have made a huge mistake. They have <laughs> person to mess with. They have no idea what this woman is capable of. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I have no idea when I started it. And then by the end, I thought no one's going to ever mess with this woman for the re- Or if they do, they're really, really going to regret it. When you're, I guess, developing or thinking of stories where you have ideas that come to your head, how do you distinguish between what 
would be a standalone novel with a new character like the chain with Rachel versus something that would be a part of the Sean Duffy kind of series. Cause w- was there any inkling in your mind of like, well, could I adapt this in a way that would be something that Sean Duffy is like con- confronting? To me, they're just completely different. The Duffy is so mixed up in the milieu and the atmosphere and the mood and the tone. And the Duffy books are completely different. It's a completely different type of writing. To me, the, the, a Duffy book is a noir. To me, the, the sort of the most important factors in a, in a noir are you really have to capture the mood. They have to capture the tone. You have to capture the atmosphere. You're giving people a world. Um, and you're giving people characters. I think with a thriller, especially a standalone thriller, um, the mood, the tone, the milieu are less important than story and character. And I think you really have to have completely compelling characters who jump off the page in the in the first chapter, first two chapters at the most. And you have to have the sense of boom over waterfall in the first couple of chapters, it, uh, thrillers, the pages have to turn. Otherwise, what's the point? You know, a mm-hmm. uh, 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 thriller, it's about economy. It's about pacing. It's about character. Whereas um, in a noir, it's more about mood. Like there's things I would do in a Duffy book that I would never do in a standalone thriller. Like you'll have this Duffy with his mates discussing, I don't know, the album listing on XL on Main Street. And they're <laughs> going through the records one by one, just go, oh, that's a Keith Richards one. That's a, a Mick Jagger one. I don't like that one. You, you couldn't do that in a thriller, uh, yeah. not a, in, in the chain or, or on the island. You, no one has time for that, any of that nonsense. You, the characters are on the run from the start. And so you, you really have to move. The styles are completely different, at least in my head anyway. I'm glad that you also mentioned music because that is such a big part of Duffy's character is his uh, eclectic taste, but also passion and ex- like extensive knowledge of all kinds of music. It seems like, especially or including, I should say, classical music. Uh, yeah. Is that something that you is that an interest or you know passion that you have that you brought to the character, or is that something completely just, unrelated? That's a reflection of the world. I mean, just when I grew up, everybody. Everybody learned an instrument. Um, there was just music everywhere. Like I grew up in a housing estate. Um, the, the projects, I suppose you would call them over here. And life took place on the street. And there were people playing guitars and fiddles and banjos and accordions. And just music was everywhere. Everyone was expected to learn an instrument. Everybody was expected to sing at parties. You know, basically everybody learned the piano or the guitar, uh, something. Uh, just music was everywhere. Um, my dad was really into sort of Irish folk music and traditional music. And my sister Diana was really into classical. So I heard a lot of that growing up on the radio. I grew up in a really fortunate era. It was like punk was going into new wave. Just a really exciting time for music. And, and then my brother went off to college. My brother being one of those hipsters who wouldn't let anyone go near his record collection. And he was <laughs> headphones on, and we never knew what he was listening to in his room. Uh, and he wouldn't let his mom, my mom into dust. He just had all these albums. And my little brother and I were just going, what's he listening to? What is this? Because we, we knew Top 40, and mm-hmm. um, we knew stuff that was in the charts, but all this other weirdo stuff that he was listening to in his headphones, we had no idea. And then when he left the college, he turned to me and my little brother. He said, 
don't go near my rat cards. And so as soon as he was in the car to the airport, we were in there, opening his rat cards, and this was this was incredible stuff. It was Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and Miles Davis. And we'd never heard of any of these guys. Uh, I was going, I, we put on Miles, we got kind of blue. And I was turning my little brother, Gareth, just, is this good? I don't know. What do you think? And then we take it off and we put on Led Zeppelin's physical graffiti. Just go, what is this? And then, you know, and so we put on all these, 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 and the Kinks and um, obscure Beatles records that he had with Japanese writing on him just go why my god and because he was quite a hipster and so that was an explosion he had like two or three hundred albums that he carefully curated for <laughs> years and didn't want our grubby paws on and we were listening to 30 a day of these uh records and so that was also a big influence 1980s music uh top 40 my hipster brother's albums, classical folk music, country music, and all came together in this wonderful melting pot. And so I wanted the character to have all those influences if I could get away with it. And it's it's striking to me now because, as we mentioned before, he's he's moving. He's in the process of going to Scotland. He's packing up his house, but he is leaving some like bare bones essentials in Ireland because he's going to be using it kind of as while he's finishing the case uh, and whatnot. And a big part of what he talks about, maybe even one of his biggest concerns is his record collection and what's getting moved over. When is it getting moved over? And oh, geez, I only have one third of my vinyl record collection with me right now in, you know, in Ireland. And I guess I'll have to get by with that. And it's such a different way of consuming music than we have now where he could have all of that in his pocket. Yeah. in the 80s, you had to literally make a commitment to having physical copies of all this music. And if you were going to have such an eclectic taste like that and you cared about it, you were going to be dedicating a lot of time uh, or space, I should say, to keeping your collection alive. Yeah, absolutely. Time and space and just cleaning them, keeping the record sleeves, you know, yeah. in it piece and i have a lot of my records are in storage lockers but my uh, daughter has recently got into vinyl and she's been going through this because she's going to college um in october and so she's been having this agony well which which, which records i can't take them all which records and i was going welcome to my world you uh generation z you know <laughs> so i'm delighted about that and uh, and they also appreciate the kids um, that it's just not the same. It's just not the same on uh, a, a phone. Um, the physical beauty and the process of taking um, a vinyl out of its sleeve and putting it on the turntable and turning the turntable on and getting that little cloth to brush off the static and then putting, oh my God, the whole process, it's meditative and mm-hmm. gorgeous and beautiful. And then when you hear the song itself, it's been such a palaver. It's such a process to get it on. Uh, you, 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 you're already tensed and ready to hear it in a way that you wouldn't be if it's just a random shuffle on your phone. You, you're, you're worshiping the music and connecting with it. In, in, in a more singular, deeper way. And I like the fact that Duffy does that because 
Uh, a lot of us old timers still do that as well. Also, I mean, I think as we mentioned before, this is this novel is taking place in 1990. Yeah, it's literally the start of 1990, right? In this conversation, talking about music, you can't talk about the 1990s without talking about the rise and advent of CDs as becoming the new dominant form of getting music, buying music, listening to music. Is that something? I guess, I guess maybe this is a two part question, but is that something that we can expect to see in a future? Uh, Sean Duffy novel where he's going to have to navigate. I'm just curious to see how he navigates the 1990s overall. And that is one example of what I would, I could see being a source of tension for him. Yeah. Duffy um, thinks that people who are buying CDs are heretics Mm. uh, and uh, the whole Catholic Protestant thing or terrorists, that's nothing compared to the apocalypse, which is coming in the form of the CD. He thinks, Mm. Um, CDs were made by Beelzebub in hell and uh, the right to destroy the world and he takes it very very seriously and I have a lot of fun with um, like uh, I think there's one of the kids where one of his underlings Lawson gives him a CD of the new um, U2 um, record and for Duffy it's like um, a vampire being given a uh, crucifix wrapped in garlic. He's like, what is this abomination before my eyes? And uh, so I, I, I do have a lot of fun with that. Uh, that that's, I, I find that hilarious. And, and uh, the weird thing is, and at the time, um, you know, I, I, I had both albums and CDs, but I, I did know a lot of old geezers who felt like that about the CD and thought it was the work of Satan. And the weird thing is they've been proved right. Um, because no, nobody has CDs anymore. A lot of people have vinyl, and mm-hmm. vinyl is collectible, and they're printing vinyl, or a lot of people have digital. But CDs don't seem to have the cachet, uh, don't seem to have survived in the way that vinyl has. So they were wacky, and they were mad, those guys, but maybe they were onto something. Even the cassette tape is kind of making a comeback in some circles, which is pretty incredible. Uh, So maybe the CD will have a resurgence someday. We just haven't seen it yet. But in terms of the the 1990s and the Troubles, the Troubles, in my understanding, kind of, can we say that they were officially over in the 90s or they kind of came to a little bit of a resolution or they at least cooled down to a more stable point in the 90s it was cooling throughout the early 90s and then it was a, the first ira ceasefire was 1994 and then the final good friday agreement was 19 yeah. so i think if i'm going to write a, the final book in this series uh, which is unwritten but if i think i would do a final book it's got to be 1998 i think that's uh, i think delphi and his milieu is the troubles it's the 80s and the 90s, and I wouldn't want to see Duffy in 2020 complaining about Brexit or <laughs> whatever. That just seems uh, wrong for hmm. I like him in the 80s and 90s complaining about the music and the bad food and the rain and, and you know, being shot at, I move them in real time through um, through the through the books. So when we eventually get to 1988, I think that'll have to be an end for the character. So he cannot exist without the troubles in your mind. He is 
he has to be in that environment. Yeah, I think so. It would be too boring, I think, to have him in 2020 or 20. Sure. Still obsessed. It might be funny for a couple of chapters. He's still obsessed by all this stuff he was obsessed by. But he's in the modern world. But otherwise, um, I think it's better to keep him young and angry and edgy in the in the 80s and 90s. I know that I'd seen, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had stopped writing for a little while for financial reasons. Yeah. But you obviously, based on the fact that we're having this conversation right now, did return to it. Uh, at some point. And I imagine that although there's probably a lot of readers listening to this, there's probably also a lot of writers. So I was wondering if you had any advice to give to any writers who maybe for yeah. financial reasons or for other reasons have been out of it for a while, but are maybe looking to get back in or would hope to get back in. Like what can you share from your experience? I took a couple of years off, uh, more a year off anyway. Um, it, I just wasn't breaking through. Um, I had written a lot of books the books were getting good reviews, and uh, so I was getting sort of a pat on the back by the crime fiction community and newspapers and stuff like that, but nobody was really buying them. So I was getting sort of intellectual success, but no financial success. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had a young family um, to support, and my wife is a school teacher, and, um, and so I was basically writing a book a year. And then when you get that royalty check and it's like, I don't know, something like $3,000 or whatever, you're just going, oh uh, my God, I've spent a year working for three grand. This is nuts. And my life working as a school teacher for the time. I just go, this is the, 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 the balance here is, 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 is not cool. So I decided to take a, a year off and, and do other things and. I did a lot of things. I was, I drove an Uber. I, um, I worked in a bar. I just did lots of, uh, lots of different things. And, but then, you know, sometimes, you know, you can make this public declaration that I'm, uh, I'm out of the game. But as they say in, um, uh, is it the Godfather part two? He says, just when I thought I was out, they dragged me back in. And, uh, just when I thought I was out, I had the idea for the chain. And I couldn't let it go. Uh, I had to write it and it was fun to write it. And I was writing it at night. I wrote it every night from, from midnight to about three in the morning. And then incredibly, it was my biggest success. And if I'd quit completely, I would never have known that. I yeah. would at RK, I, it was the, the, you know, I wanted to be a writer. I tried it. I wrote a dozen books. I didn't make it, and uh, some of the tell the grandchildren, "Hey, do you know that for a while in, the, in my thirties and forties, I was a novelist?" Really, grandpa, you know, I've got some. But um, actually, um, the only thing I'd say to writers is, it, 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 it honestly, it's never too late. You just don't know what's going to happen. And um, my favorite recent story is is Sean Cosby. So Sean um, S. A. Cosby is is. Yeah. As he's known now, uh, um, Sean had been writing for years, years and years and years. He'd been writing short stories and novellas and a novel and wasn't breaking through. And he was working in a funeral home in Delta, Virginia, just wasn't getting anywhere. And then he writes this book called Blacktop Wasteland. Yep. And it's this book called Razorblade Tears. And before he knows what's happening, he's on the Tonight Show, 
and uh, his books have been optioned by Michael Bay, I think, or uh, Jerry Brookheimer. That, that those yeah. guys. His last book, um, I, I can't, can't temporarily remember the, the title, but I, I just I was laughing to myself uh, because it was his last book, which came out a month ago, had a full page review by Stephen King in the New York Times, and this is a guy who was on the verge of quitting like three years ago, and so. Uh, if I'm an example to anybody and Sean's an example to anybody, it's just hang on in there because you just never know what's going to happen. That Look at that. That's two two inspirational tales for the price of one. Not only your story, I think, is incredibly inspirational, but also S.A. Cosby, uh, yeah. who's another bookseller favorite. I believe one or both of those titles were uh, monthly uh, mystery thriller picks here for us at Barnes & Noble. So we're so glad that you stuck with it and you came back. Super exciting. Uh, I really appreciate all your time. The new book is The Detective Up Late. It's the Sean Duffy series. Two more questions before I let you go. Obviously, this is what's happening to Sean Duffy right now, but what is next for Sean Duffy? We alluded to it a little bit. Maybe he's going to go into, he's definitely going to be in the 90s, but what do you see roughly in his future? So, um, Booker is um, in the can, so to speak. I've written um, a full outline for I haven't actually written the book. But I've got a full out. Sometimes um, I'm a seat of the pants writer where um, I'll just make it up as I go along, um, Lee Child style. Um, and other times um, I will carefully plan it out. And so for the next book, I know it, that one's carefully planned. I've got it all really prodded out. So I know what's going to happen. It's really fun case for Sean. When I write that one up, that will be that'll be a really fun one. And then I have a new standalone, which will be coming out next year, which I have been told I'm not allowed to say anything about. Um I've had <laughs> very strict instructions from editors and publishers and people like that and said you're not allowed to say anything. I guess I'm allowed to say that I have a book coming out and it's a standalone. And I'm not allowed to hint what it's about or who it's about. It takes place on Earth. Uh, I think. All right. That think narrows I, it down. Sure. <laughs> they act without people coming in there breaking my kneecaps. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll find out if I hear a knock on the door in an hour's time. Why did you say it takes place on Earth? We told you not to send anything. Um. <laughs> So there is a new Sean Duffy and uh, there will be a new uh, standalone uh, next year. And you have some media adaptations maybe in the works for The Chain and The Island, perhaps? Yeah, they've both been optioned. The Chain has been optioned by uh, Sony Pictures. Mm. And the Island has been optioned by Universal. Uh, so obviously nothing's happening at the moment because sure, sure. The, like, uh, the actors are yeah. strong. But presumably, um, when all of that gets resolved, there should be some news for me to break about um, those two adaptations. Well, we will absolutely be looking forward to that. Until then, the new book is The Detective Up Late, number seven in the Sean Duffy series. It's terrific. Uh, it's funny. It's dark. It's action-packed. It's a great mystery. Uh, if you're looking for something to read this summer, I would definitely check it out. Uh, even if you're not familiar with the Sean Duffy series, I think this would be a good entry point. I think you don't have to have read the other ones to have understood it or to really enjoy it, I think. So, Adrian, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I will just reiterate what you said. 
all the books are um, self-contained. Um, you don't have to have read the, the one before. Um, they all they'll have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a resolution. No cliffhangers. I don't do that. I don't make you go buy book six, five, four, three, two, one. If you, if you read seven, you can be confident that you've got a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that's the end of the story. And um, so, yes, absolutely. Um, book seven, Sean Duffy, Detective Upload. Check it out. And thank you guys for having me. And I will make one last plug. All of those backlist titles, or most of them at least, should be available at Adrian's former employer and my current employer, Barnes and Noble. So stop by to your local store. I think you will be very excited to see all the changes that we have made in the recent years. So thanks again, Adrian. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes and Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.